Welcome to the Finding Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Liz McComish. Just like a seed holds all the knowledge it needs to grow into the plant it was destined to be, I believe you hold all the wisdom within you to create the most amazing life. Join me and my special guests as we explore the path back into your innate wisdom and teach you how to harness it. This is your life to live your way. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I have someone who I admire very deeply, who is Sarah Rusbat. She is a grey area drinking coach and she supports women to find freedom in sobriety. Welcome, Sarah. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm really happy to have you here. I have learned so much about grey area drinking from you. I had never actually even heard of grey area drinking before before I met you and learning about it has been very profound for me and really changed my uh, relationship with things that I do in my life quite a lot actually and so uh, maybe we can start there. You can explain to people what grey area drinking actually means. Yeah, and that's a good place to start because when I tell people I'm a great area drinking coach, they're like, what? What does that (laughs) mean? Um, Is this a thing? Um, So I'd like to start it this way with going, if I said to you, that person's an alcoholic, what's the immediate vision that comes into your mind of what an alcoholic looks like? Uh, Like... Like paralytic, you know, like unconscious. Um, oh, yeah, not being able to hold down a job. Um, I get an image of a homeless person, actually, which I know is not correct, but it's it's interesting that that's the image that comes to my mind. And it is for so many people, and that is the way that society has dictates that someone who's an alcoholic is homeless, they're on a park bench, they're drinking out of a brown paper bag, they've lost their family, their jobs, their home, their driving license. And and we start to to consider people like that as being like real down and outs and shame Mm -hmm. on them. And there's so much stigma around that. So of course, if you go into a room of people who are all standing there with a drink and you say, right, hands up if you're an alcoholic, not many people are gonna admit to that, even if they've been questioning their drinking because we associate alcoholism with that end stage of physical dependency. And so the term alcoholic actually gets people, I think it stops people reaching out for help because if we don't identify as being that homeless person who drinks in the morning and who wakes with trembling hands and has to just have a drink immediately, if we don't identify as that being us, then what are we? And it's not that you go to bed one day a drinker and wake up the next day an alcoholic, there's a scale. And that's where gray area drinking is so useful to start to consider this. In the UK, in fact, they don't even use the term alcoholic anymore. They use the term alcohol use disorder. And they consider that on a spectrum as to mild, moderate, severe. Mm -hmm. Because if we just simply go straight for the juggernaut of you're an alcoholic, then that's got, you know, all of those stereotypes that come with it. So I consider gray area drinking to be, think about someone's drinking on a scale of one to 10. One is someone very rarely drinks, maybe has a glass of champagne at a wedding and just doesn't even think about alcohol any other time. And 10 is 
end stage physical dependence on alcohol needs to have medical support to withdraw because we now know that alcohol is one of only three substances that the human body can die from the withdrawal symptoms of wow so, yeah right and the other wow two, interestingly liz the other two one's illegal and you can only buy um from criminals um and the other which one's that sarah which is heroin and um, the other is um, one of the pharmaceutical drugs that you can only get on prescription from a medical practitioner and can only purchase in certain amounts at any one time from a trained person you have to show your id to be able to be given it and then the third one is alcohol which was labeled as an essential service during lockdown oh wow only three Gosh, it just goes to show, you know, the effect that alcohol actually has on us, doesn't it? Totally. So you've got a one and a 10 on that scale. One never drinks. 10 mm -hmm. physical dependence needs to go into a medical rehab detox facility to be administered certain drugs to allow their body to come off alcohol safely. And what's in the middle? Because most people mm. don't identify as being a one or a 10. So the gray yeah. area I consider to be about a four to an eight on that scale. So where we've okay. up and we've started using alcohol as a crutch, we've started using it to numb emotions. We're using it for a reason as opposed yeah. to it's just a take it or leave it drink that we just kind of, oh, if it's there, I might have it. I don't think about it any other way. When we've started going up that scale, that's when we start to come into the gray area. And I, I work yeah. with women primarily um, who would identify as being about a four to an eight on that scale. So Sarah, how would we know that we're on that scale if we haven't if we haven't identified with the fact that we're suppressing stuff? Because I know myself as a younger woman, um, I had a lot of early trauma in my life, and as a young woman, I can look back now and I realise that I was I was a great area drinker, definitely, um, because it was part of my cultural identity i guess or my social identity at that stage i never looked at it as oh i'm drinking to you know numb any emotions or to support myself or to self-medicate i didn't look at it that way but it was it was just part of if i was catching up with friends or if i was going to a function we'd be drinking or if i got home from work i would instantly open a bottle of wine straight away my body was craving it but I had no idea I, I know now but at the time I had no idea that I was numbing myself yeah and lots of people don't realize that and, and with a lot of the women that I work with suddenly they're going oh my goodness all these emotions are coming up now that I've removed alcohol and I'm like yeah because you've been yeah. numbing them for so long but we don't realize we're doing it so I think that the majority of the women I work with are, I would say, age 35 to 55. Um, and I think that there's two types of um, paths that we go down after, I'd say it's a rite of passage, that the majority of people um, in Australia, in the UK, will end up drinking in their teenage years. And they go through the, the university, the early 20s, of going out, you know, experimenting, you become sexually active, you're out there looking for partners, you're dancing, you're clubbing, you're doing all of those things. And, and no one kind of raises an eyebrow. And then I think that there's usually then two paths and people either then grow up and they're kind of like, 
doing it for me anymore I'm kind of like I've done with my partying time maybe they were doing it more just to fit in at the time and they've realized that they've got older and that doesn't work for me the hangovers are really bad and blah 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 and then there's the other path which I went down which was I'm just gonna keep on drinking I'm going to um, really keep on drinking into my 30s becoming a mother into my 40s um, and and the signs that I would say when we've gone down that path because I never identified as being an alcoholic. I never drank mm -hmm. in the morning. I never, well, okay, that's probably a lie actually. I did sometimes drink in the morning, but it wasn't a regular thing. Um, yeah. I didn't drink every day. And society told me that you were only an alcoholic if you drank every day. And so, um, and I never identified as being an alcoholic. So if you don't give yourself that label, then you kind of go, well, I must be okay then, because there isn't anything else. It's just an alcoholic or a drinker. And that's where the terminology gray area drinking is really helpful to be able to go, it's not as linear as going black and white, alcoholic or drinker. There, there's a scale. And once we get into that gray area, you don't go from being a three to being a 10 overnight. You work through that scale, three to four to five to six, but you're generally only ever going in one direction unless you take note and start to notice, okay, there's some signs here. And I'll, I'll share with you a few of the signs that really stand out for me and that I share with the people that I work with. So number one, you make rules around your drinking because I mm. think people that don't have a problem with alcohol don't set rules around their drinking. They just have a drink if they want a drink and they don't have a drink if they don't have a, um, want to have a drink. They don't think about it. It doesn't take up mental headspace. Whereas for me, I just live by rules, right? I'm not allowed to drink on a Monday and Tuesday. I'm not allowed to drink before 5 p.m. I'm not allowed to drink white wine on an empty stomach. I'm not allowed to drink at lunchtime unless it's out with friends. I'm not allowed to drink on a Saturday unless it's X, Y, Z. And so I just live with this constant chatter of these constant rules that took up mm -hmm. so much headspace. And I often broke... But then there was never any consequences to me breaking them other than me just feeling really bad on myself, increasing my self-loathing, the inner critic had a field day and all of that. But externally, mm. I carried on as I was. So making rules around our drinking, noticing that we set intentions to not drink or only have one, and then we often break that. So we might go, I'm just gonna have one or two tonight and we nearly always finish the bottle. Or we wake up in the morning and go, oh my God, God, I drank so much last night. I feel dreadful today, right? That's it. I'm having a clean week. I'm not drinking for the rest of this week. And then come five o'clock, we're pouring a glass of wine. If we notice that the moment we have an uncomfortable emotion, the first thing we think of is, I need a glass of wine. And we just feed that. We do alcohol's job for it in our mother's groups, in our WhatsApp groups on Facebook, where, you know, the minute you go to a group and go, oh my God, I've had a terrible day. The kids are driving me nuts. My husband's being a knob. I'm just having one of those days. Yeah. response will be, oh my God, go and run a bath and pour a glass of wine. Like we just feed this message that alcohol's a reward. Alcohol's a soother. Alcohol's something that we deserve at the end of a hard day. Yeah, yeah. And let's... You know, let's be really clear on something because I know that you know this and I know this as well, is that alcohol is the most dangerous substance that we can get our hands on in terms of what we're allowed to get legally. It's the most dangerous, apart from cigarettes, but cigarettes operate in a different way on our physiology. But it is so, it's not good for us at all. And yet it's out there and it's promoted so heavily to us. Um, so, so that's something that is, we need to get really clear about in society, I think. And to find that information is, you almost have to dig. Do you, do you find that as well? Like you have to go in search of that information about 
the effect that alcohol alcohol actually has on us physiologically, mentally, emotionally, socially, spiritually. You've got to dig for it to actually find it. Yeah, like I had no idea of the link between alcohol and breast cancer. Like mm. one in five breast cancer diagnoses in Australia are directly attributed to alcohol. One in five. Wow, that's... Uh, it's insane. So alcohol, it directly causes seven types of cancer. It's really addictive. Um, but we have this, this label of it's your fault if you become an alcoholic when, when all we've mm. done is become addicted to an addicted substance. You know, like mm. it's, it, it, yeah, that, that kind of is a whole other conversation. Um, we now know that alcohol causes anxiety and even people that drink one or two glasses of wine a few nights a week have a higher level of baseline cortisol in their body than people that don't drink at all. So it increases yeah. cortisol, leaving us feeling more stressed and anxious, meaning that we reach for more alcohol to relieve the symptoms that have been caused by the alcohol in the first place, which is the irony of this, this substance. Um, it's really interesting, Liz, because um, two or three weeks ago, Canada was the first country to come out and say, there's no safe amount of alcohol that we're recommending anyone drink. Wow. They're the first country to do it. So you know how every other country has limits? Yeah. Two yeah. units a week or 12 units a week. Canada's the first country that's come out and said, there is no, given the cancer risks of alcohol, there is no safe amount. What about Australia, hon? Like Australia, where do we sit in comparison to the rest of the world on our, you know, our culture around drinking? Let's actually specifically come into WA for a minute because you and I are both in WA. We'll go from there and maybe branch out a little bit on your knowledge around, you know, the culture around alcohol. WA, what's the culture like here around drinking alcohol? Well, I'll give you a really interesting statistic that I read um, only last week. It, it's an Australian statistic um, from a mm -hmm. 2021 study. Um, Australians drink the most of any country in the world. Mm. And we've been led down that path, haven't we? I mean, it's been so... So much of our cultural identity has been about, you know, cracking open a tinny or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, even around, remember things like around the Sky Show and all these different times where alcohol is seen as this way that we actually celebrate and join with other people. So those images have been put into our head, those narratives have been put into our head and that has a massive effect on then just what we unconsciously think about what's part of us being part of a cultural group. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say like here in WA, it, um, like the Australian and the British drinking cultures are similar in many ways as a high binge drinking um, culture. But even coming from the UK and coming over here, I was surprised at quite a few things about the Australian drinking culture. For example, it really surprised me how much the, the bottle shops, for example, really promote you buying huge quantities of alcohol at any one time, how expensive it is to buy just four compared to buying a case of beer or a case of cider or whatever. Whereas in the UK, you can just go to like the local shop and you can buy one can of lager or two cans and you don't get penalized with a high price. Whereas here in Australia, it never makes sense to just buy four or six. And we all know wow. that when you've got it at home, you're just going to drink it, right? So they encourage you to be mm. buying in that quantity of alcohol. There's no, um, there's nothing being done to kind of limit how much people buy at any one time. Wow, I had no idea that that was the case. So we're almost being set up in that way, like buy some more. And then obviously, yes, you will drink it because you're 
uh, ability to like what you can actually take the way that you handle alcohol obviously just continues to increase and increase and increase like your window of tolerance for alcohol right yeah and that's why we end up like so many of my ladies for everyone on that scale like I was saying before you start at at a two or three maybe you notice oh I definitely find that come five o'clock I'm pouring a glass of wine just to kind of get my head into the headspace of dealing with kids and bath time and preparing dinner and homework and unloading the dishwasher and doing all my jobs like and then that becomes two glasses because oh that's just gone really quickly I need to have an extra one and then before Mm. we know it it's three quarters of a bottle and then and I've got clients who are extremely high functioning they're holding down jobs they're raising kids they're running houses and they're easily drinking two bottles of wine a night getting up in the morning going to the gym and getting through their day because our body becomes so tolerant our wonderful brain works out very quickly what it needs to do to metabolize the alcohol and process the alcohol as quickly as possible and this whole neurological response happens the minute we have a sip of alcohol that releases all these neurotransmitters in response to the effect the alcohol is having sarah while i've got you because you are you know one of i think globally a leading person in this area you are such a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of information, and you have your own you have your own history around this as well. And I know what led you to this place because we've spoken about that before. I wonder if you can like let's just go hard for a minute on the effects that alcohol actually has on people, like the depth, you know, because we know it is very very dangerous. So let's go there, and then perhaps we can move into a space of talking to people who are listening to this about actually how you can start to move away from it and start to adjust your life because it is possible and I know it's possible you know I've done it myself and I know your story which we'll get into in in a sec but let's just go to the reality of this because the reality is big and people need to hear it because it's not out there in the mainstream yeah and so we can we've obviously touched on the physical aspects of what alcohol does it's it directly causes seven types of cancer. There's a really important thing. Would you say the majority of your listeners are female? Yes. Yeah. So it's really interesting to note that women become addicted to alcohol quicker than men. Women are susceptible to the impact of alcohol on their liver and heart health quicker than men. And the reason for this is we actually produce less of an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase which metabolizes alcohol and gets it out of our system quickly. We as women don't have as much of it. The other thing to note is that when we enter our perimenopause years, um, the the size and function of our liver can change by up to 40%. So our capacity Mm. to metabolize alcohol. So for me, through my 30s, oh God, I just like was loud and proud about my capacity for alcohol. I don't get hangovers, I can have two bottles and I'm fine. hit 40 and everything changed for me. And now I know that that's a lot to do with the change in our hormones, the change in our liver, the change in just years and years of continuous drinking starts to take its toll. Um, So for women, because we have less of this enzyme, it means that more alcohol enters our bloodstream. So, and and there's the blood-brain barrier, which is why um, the alcohol can cross, which we now know means that alcohol impacts our brain, our mental well-being, our serotonin levels, it's linked to anxiety and depression. It's linked to so many physiological responses. Um, When our beautiful liver has so much work to do metabolizing alcohol, it doesn't get a chance to metabolize estrogen which it also needs to metabolize our body produces estrogen and the liver has to it has three um pathways and it three detox processes that the estrogen has to go through 
when alcohol is in the picture, the liver will always prioritize alcohol because it's a foreign substance. It needs to get mm. it out as quickly as possible. But what that means is that the, all of this excess estrogen then is in our body um, and gets circulated in an altered state. And that's where the link comes to hormone related cancers um, related to alcohol. The other thing to bear in mind for women is that when our estrogen levels are higher at different stages in the month, we'll be more intoxicated than when they're lower. So for women, you could have um, half a bottle of wine one night and be absolutely fine and not even feel it the next day. And then two weeks later, have that same half bottle, get memory loss, blackout and hardly remember anything and feel dreadful the next morning. And you'll sit there and be like, but I don't understand. They didn't have that much. And that's all to do with your cycle and how much estrogen um, is in your blood at any one time. And then the other thing that's really important to know is that alcohol massively impacts our sleep. So they've now done studies. When we sleep, we go through sleep cycles, um, which usually involve REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep, where we dream, and deep sleep. And each cycle, uh, we have about six or seven cycles every night. And for, our, for good brain health, we need to have both equal amounts of REM and deep sleep. When we drink, that reduces to one to two cycles of REM sleep because alcohol knocks us out, sends us into that deep, deep comatose sleep. And then what usually happens is the alcohol wears off, all of this excess cortisol that's been released by our brain in response to the alcohol that we've been drinking is firing around the body, and then we struggle to get back to sleep. So that's why so often we'll feel so tired the next day, we're not getting that REM sleep that scientists now know are, is incredibly powerful for preventing brain diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia, and also is related to how long we're gonna live for. So again, really important that we start to understand that on the nights that we can take it or leave it, it's always better to leave it because it's always going to affect your sleep. Yeah. Um, and about what about what about brain health long term like aside from sleep if we are if we're drinking how does alcohol affect our brain long term so we know that we um we get a, a surge of serotonin and then it drops and when we keep repeating that we actually end up producing less serotonin so we have a decreased sense of well-being the the longer we're drinking and the other thing that i find really interesting is Alcohol lights up that dopamine reward center in the brain. So we know we get that kind of, that, that I call it a dopamine punch, right? So mm. it, it's, it's like, and I, and I liken it to between dopamine tickles and dopamine punches, right? Our dopamine reward center, it likes to have a little tickle. It likes to have um, a, a night out with girlfriends where you're laughing and having a great night. It likes exercise. It likes watching a sunrise. It likes natural feel good things. A dopamine punch is alcohol, cocaine, sugar, gambling, pornography, like the things that really, really can that light up that pleasure zone. So they've done studies now that show that people who um, drink a lot lose a sense of looking forward to things that don't involve the substance of choice. So mm. what that means, we stop getting joy and happiness from the things that don't give us the dopamine punch. So we have a decreased sense of well-being to the point that all we're doing is looking forward to the next time we're drinking. And the most incredible thing for me, Liz, I think has been since I removed alcohol, all the things that bring me joy now, they were there all along. I haven't just completely transformed my life. Well, I have in many ways, but, but the things that I now find joy in 
they were always there. I just wasn't looking because all I was mm. doing was thinking about when's the next wine? When am I next getting pissed? Or recovering from the last time I got drunk and feeling mm. dreadful and hating myself and, and all the rest of it. And so it's really interesting to know that when we remove alcohol and our dopamine center starts to settle down, we start getting those tickles and the tickles are pretty good. It's interesting that you talked to, you mentioned pornography as well because um, you know, in terms of pornography and intimacy, that I love the way you call it that dopamine punch because we can lose that sense of being able to have the the beautiful intimacy with a partner, which is actually so much more subtle and there's so much more depth to it. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper the more you go into the subtle subtlety of of beautiful intimacy. And so I can imagine that then with alcohol, if if alcohol is creating that dopamine punch, then it must be affecting all the areas of your life, right? You don't have to be also then be engaging in pornography. If you are engaging in alcohol to that degree and getting that dopamine punch, that will also affect things like your, your intimacy as well and your ability to, like you said, find the joy in small things in your life. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing that when we remove alcohol, one of the number one jobs that we have in doing that is not replacing alcohol with something else that mm. lights up that reward center, which, and that's the difference between taking a break from alcohol on your own and working with a trained sobriety coach who can really guide you through finding those tickles rather than just replacing for another punch, because it's really common what lots of people do. The most common one is we swap alcohol for sugar. So we stop drinking and then we go, right, well, how can I numb my emotions with something else then? Um, and then enter the chocolate cake. And I always say to everyone in the early days, do whatever you've got to do to stop drinking. Like in the first three months, eat the sugar. If that means you're not reaching for the alcohol, we're breaking those neural pathways of not reaching for, for alcohol, but we're going to reach a point where we're going to need to start being able to learn how to sit with our emotions because that's the number one reason I believe that so many of us, that we have a society of so many people of our age who are drinking at the level they are or using other things for the dopamine reward center is because we've never been taught how to sit with and process our emotions. And I think the next generation is being talked about so much more, but you and I, we never had it modeled to us of going, no. I'm feeling this right now. Can I sit with you? And, and what do you need from me right now? My mum was mm. just like, you've got a roof over your head, you've got food on the table, shut up with your moaning and just get on with it because that was that generation, right? Uh, it was, it totally was. And I mean, I often use this example, I'm sure I've used it with you before of, you know, if a child falls over and hurts themselves, it used to be very common practice to try and distract them if they were crying, you know, if they're in pain to try and distract them. And it's a very simple example, but it is a very profound example because that's what happens over and over again in our lives where people try and distract us and people find it very hard to sit with our, with our emotions, to sit with deep pain. Um, even clients I have who have a lot of grief in their life, for example, if someone has passed away in their life and they're experiencing a lot of grief over it, they'll often tell me that one of the hardest parts is that other people are not able to sit with that. They want to distract them from their pain. And the reason that those people are doing that is because they've never actually been held you know, safely in their own pain. So no one really knows how to sit with it yet. Being able to sit with our emotions, because our emotions come and go, they're a natural part of being alive. We need our emotions. We have core emotions that are part of being alive. And if you love someone and you lose them, you will feel grief and it's part of being alive. And being able to sit with that is the key to 
really being able to embrace your life and you know I really get that culturally and I wonder if in Australia as well we've really got that culture of getting up and getting on with it type of thing and so perhaps that's why alcohol has played such a major role as well but I'm wondering is there like from your point of view I know you've worked with so many women and so successfully as well um, that you know if someone's listening to this and they have a whole life that you know socially it's really really does revolve around drinking um how do they start this process in a way that's not too terrifying i know that for myself when i really pulled back on drinking and i you know I'd go to it somewhere and i wasn't drinking and people would look at me like i was a fruitcake and, and didn't actually know how to even communicate with me so i get there are so many barriers when we've built our life around drinking so yeah how does how can they start these baby steps yeah and the first thing i always say is don't do it alone because it it's hard we live in an alcohol centric society and alcohol is the only drug you have to justify not taking and you say to someone i've stopped smoking and the response is good on you well done mm. and you say you've stopped drinking oh don't be so boring just have one and so it's hard at first like your friends and and I mean, I could talk for hours about this, but the, the the crux of this is we've got to get clear on why we want to do it. Because mm. one of the signs, you know, coming back to what I was talking about before, the signs that we're a grey area drinker, if we've noticed that alcohol's taking more than it's giving, if we've got to that point of going, every time I drink, I wake up at 3am. Every time I drink, I have chronic anxiety the next day. Every time I drink, I black out and I can't remember things. Every time I drink, I don't achieve any of my goals for the week every time you know when we're doing that it's it's time to start evaluating what's my relationship with alcohol and my biggest message is you don't have to be an alcoholic to decide to stop drinking you can make that decision at any point to simply take a break and to see what your life is like without it because most people mm. in the Western world will never take a long enough break from alcohol to know how they truly feel without it um, and so coming back to the the socializing thing when you know your why Join their, like I've got a free Facebook community with, like I think it's got about 14,000 sober curious women in it from all over the world and it's incredibly supportive. So even just coming in there and starting to see others' experiences, get a couple of people on your side, like friends, partners, whoever it might be, um, and say to them, look, I'm gonna take this month off. Um, I really still wanna see you because the biggest mistake I see people making is going, all my friends drink, I don't wanna be in a pub right now because that's gonna be too tempting. So they just stay home. They don't see anyone for a month and then come the end of the month they're like well this sobriety thing is crap I'm, I'm lonely i'm disconnected and i'm bored and i'm frustrated so i must go back to drinking so uh, going, i'm just taking alcohol out i've got to add other things in that still bring me joy right so that's that makes a lot of sense and so it's not you yeah because it would be it'd be very hard to step into all your normal social social situations if everyone's drinking that would be way too hard but then bring your social links into a space where you're not drinking so you still get that communication with them yeah that makes a lot yeah. of sense sarah like going for breakfast with a girlfriend going for a walk or having lunch or saying does anyone want to go to the theater this week so still make sure that you see your people but it just doesn't have to revolve around alcohol because otherwise we get this misconstrued idea that sobriety means sitting at home, never going out, never having fun, never connecting to anyone. And that's not what it is. But we've got to be intentional with making sure we still get connection, but just in a different way. And what if you have like a big a wedding coming up or some big party coming up? 
and you know everyone's going to be drinking and you're not going to pull out of that because you've been invited to it and you really want to go like have you any advice for that particular situation and look it's like trying to get pregnant isn't it there's never a good time and so we're going to <laughs> yeah ourselves out of <laughs> oh, I can't do that month because it's my friend's 40th and I can't do that month because I'm going on a girls weekend and sometimes we've just got to go like even if we've got that much resistance we've probably got a problem with alcohol because like if, if we're yeah. struggling to even find a month where we can't even contemplate doing something without alcohol there's a bit of a problem there, right? There's a bit of a reliance and a dependence. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I always say like alcohol-free drinks in those scenarios are brilliant. Um, alcohol-free champagne. Um, I've got lots of clients, if they're going to weddings, they'll phone up the venue and say, I don't drink. Everyone's going to be asking me why I'm not drinking. I don't want to just have Coke or orange juice. Do you mind if I bring an alcohol-free champagne or do you have anything like that? And the overwhelming response generally is really positive. And they'll either say, let us source something for you or feel free to bring your own and we'll give you an ice bucket for it. Amazing. So that takes the pressure off so that people stop asking you, like, are you not drinking? Why are you not drinking? It takes that pressure because you look like you're drinking, so everyone can cut back off. And also, like, it's nice to have a nice-tasting drink, right? Some of the alcohol-free champagnes um, are brilliant, but they just don't have the alcohol in them. And so you you can still go and have a really nice-tasting drink. You don't have to feel like a five-year-old having a blooming orange juice or a Sprite or whatever, you can still have a nice taste in drink, but it just doesn't have the alcohol content. Yeah, yeah. And so women do, they can do a month with you in your in your coaching group. What do you often see at the end of that month with women? It's just incredible. Like I think the last 30-day program that I've done, which um, just ended a couple of weeks ago, has been like the number of messages that I've had from people saying it's just changed their lives has um, has blown me away. And I think that um, the, the vibe in this group especially was we had over 600 women from all over the world who were just sharing, connecting, supporting, cheering, um, a safe space to come and vent. And every day I went in there and I talked to them about different topics around understanding, you know, even understanding how big alcohol made a conscious decision that they weren't making enough money from women drinking their products. So how can we create drinks that women will drink so that we can make sure we increase our profits? And as soon as they started doing that, the number of women in hospital with liver disease quadrupled. And so like the yeah. between big alcohols and, and how we've been marketed to and sold to this, the dream that you need alcohol to have fun and relax and everything. So I, I take people through those programs. But, but most of all, as you know, I know you're this whole podcast is about finding freedom and and that honestly is what these women have found and, and they're starting to, they're, they're peeling back the layers of finally getting to know who they are because they're not numbing or distracting or avoiding themselves anymore and yeah don't get me wrong it can be friggin' hard yes it's hard because if we haven't got to know ourselves or sat with ourselves since we started drinking which for most of my women is mid-teenage years 14 15 if we've been drinking since that age and we've numbed every emotion since then there's a hell of a lot of emotional growing up to do and that can bring with it a lot of tears a lot of sadness but it also brings with it empowerment and Mm. knowing that we're on a path of healing knowing that we're finally coming back to our authentic self knowing that we're finally discovering who the hell we are at age 45 55 65 i've got women who've been drinking for 45 years and they come and do my program and they will literally sit with me at the end and just be like i finally know myself 
And yeah. They did was, I say the only thing they did was remove alcohol, but actually it's a huge thing. But it's not even about removing alcohol. It's about if I remove alcohol, what do I love doing instead? Who am I without it? How do I feel about certain things? How do I feel about my relationships, my friendships, how I spend my time, the job I do? We suddenly get this um, this clarity around how we want to live our life, but we also get confidence to make changes. Because I can tell you something that no one has confidence, clarity, or self-esteem when they're drinking a bottle of wine at night. Like they just yeah. sit in a pool of often self-pity. I sat in victim mode for a very long time. Poor me, poor me, my life is terrible. It's all so hard as I just drank my wine and made no changes and hated the world for not delivering what I wanted. But with removing alcohol came the clarity and confidence to make the changes that only I ever could have made to create. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, hearing you speak like that just really brings, it brings tears to my eyes. And I, um, you know, in the work that I do as a Hispanic therapist, like people come to me when they go, who am I? Like, what's all this stuff coming up for me? I don't understand this. And, And it's always working back to their authentic self. And when they reconnect with that, like I get goosies talking about it, you know, seeing just seeing in them when they finally find that that part of them they finally reconnect to their authentic self there's often so much fear between where they are right now and what lies underneath because what lies underneath between them and their authentic self uh, like ways that they have avoided or been taught to avoid emotions over the years and i'll always say to people you know this is what I found 100% of the time is that the fear of what's underneath is always greater than what's actually underneath. And once you start to go in, you find there's even a beauty in releasing and understanding and su- releasing suppressed emotions. There's such a beauty in that because there can be profound realizations and inner poetry that comes from that. And anyone, you know, any of the greatest um, music we've ever heard or the greatest. Um, poetry we've ever read has always come from this place of raw emotion it hasn't come from a place where you know we weren't that person was really disconnected from themselves and in fact many of the most beautiful things we ever hear are people's pathways back into finding that inner authenticity and you know Sarah I know with you you've got you've got a big story and one of the things I really greatly admire about you is that you are so authentic because you have walked this path you didn't go and become a coach and think I'm just going to lead people through this you've actually gone you've gone through the whole process and that's why you're so well placed to to hold women in this space and I wonder if you would be okay to share a bit about your story and you know the depth that you got to and when you made the decision to to Go in search of your authentic self. Yeah, and I'm, I, I won't, you know, go into too much detail because I'm very aware um, it can be a long story, and I won't, I won't make it long for anyone that does want to know more about it. There's a lot on my on my website, but for me, I'd always been a big social drinker. I was always the party girl. Never saw anything about it that was negative. Looking back, I can see that I craved connection from quite a young age. By the age of twelve, I'd been to mm. five schools. And I'd always been the new girl. I'd always had to try and fit in. I didn't particularly have a safe environment at home. I don't mean I was ever physically unsafe, but my mum and dad were not mentally stable. There was a lot of conflict at home. And now having worked with you, I can understand that there was a lot of trauma in my nervous system as a child. And when I discovered alcohol at 14, it did two things for me. It 
made me feel connected to others really quickly because you know that whole you're my best friend that was like, yeah yeah I yeah minute, I love you because I didn't feel like I fitted in and I didn't get the love and attachment at home that I so craved. And so I got it through alcohol. I got it really quickly through alcohol because there wasn't mm. a slow burning way of um, getting to know someone slowly. Like alcohol and then drugs for me very quickly gave me that. I mean, God, take an ex ecstasy with someone and you're kind of like, oh, you know, best friends. Head within seconds. Yeah, best friends forever until it wears off. And then it's like, who was that person? Like, <laughs> Do you know I give them my phone number? I think I might need to change my phone number. <laughs> and, but, but for me, at, at that age, it was like that ticked the boxes for me. It made me feel part of something. I, all I wanted was to be included, to feel part of a group, to feel like I was accepted and had deep connections. It made me feel loved. It gave me a sense of attachment. And so alcohol fulfilled that purpose for me very quickly. Didn't never ever put two and two together. Obviously, it's taken a lot of hell of unpacking since I quit booze to understand that. But what I now know is I then formed friendships only ever through using alcohol. That was and drugs, and that was the way that I did it because it works, right? That was how I, I thought I was being my authentic self. But I thought mm. I was just there as a party girl. I just love partying. Um, the wheels came off for me a little bit after having my son and and daughter and being in Australia, and I'd left behind all my friends, all my family um my job and we'd moved to the other side of the world and i had two kids under two and i was homesick i was really lonely i was trying so hard to make friends like i look back and i cringe liz because i would literally go to these baby groups and these swimming lessons with like two kids in tow with all these other harassed mothers who looked like you know bedraggled and tired and i'd be like who wants to go out and get drunk this weekend and leave the kids with their dads? And they'd all look at me like, are you crazy? Like, <laughs> no one wants to do that with me. And I was like, friends. So I was like, why are these people being mm. so mean to me? Why does no one want to be my friend? Um, they did want to be my friend. They just didn't want to do it. I were getting smashed in, you know, pubs every weekend. And so I then started drinking a lot on my own at home that became a crutch because they're big emotions, you know, feeling left out. I'd lost that connection that I so deeply craved. I was lonely. I was homesick. Things in my marriage were not great. I'd lost my sense of identity from having this brilliant job that I had loved for so long. And I was at home with two kids under two, cleaning baby sick, pureeing carrot, going to baby rhyme time and just going, who the hell am I? Sarah, can I just say, like, what's really interesting to hear you say then is that the movement of using alcohol for connection to begin with, which is probably where a lot of us start, and then it moved into using alcohol to suppress. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Because it works for suppression. It's bloody mm. brilliant at that. Well, it works well, with both, doesn't it? Connection and suppression, it works with with both, but that's a very interesting trajectory that it actually takes. And I wonder how many people actually experience it in that way, that it doesn't move from that connection to suppression space. I can tell you thousands because yeah. I've a lot of people with the same story. And that's why I think so many people have been drawn to working with me because mm. they hear my story and they're like, well, yeah, that, that's me too. Um, and so I was drinking more and more on my own, more at home. Um, as I said, I had these constant rules. Um, 
just built up and built up and got to the point where anxiety had got really bad. And I'd gone to my GP and, and I'd said, you know, I'm so anxious, I'm overthinking everything, I worry about everything, I've got no energy. And at no point did she say, how much are you drinking? Alcohol didn't even come into the question. She just happily gave me my script for anti-anxiety meds and, and off I went. I didn't take the tablets and I just, as I think um, I'm noticing more and more happens in my life, the more you tune into it. I was scrolling Facebook that day with a terrible, terrible hangover. And I saw a post in my running group because I ran as my punishment for how much I drank. So I was a runner because I was like, I can't be an alcoholic if I can still run half marathons. So I kind of had that, that justification in my mind. And in my running group, someone posted that they'd read this book about giving up alcohol and it had changed their life. And I was like, hmm, interesting. There was obviously something connected to that in my mind. Something in my subconscious, I think, had started to be going, this isn't good, you can't carry on drinking like this. So I read the book and I said, I'm going to take 21 days off. And this was back in 2017. And I did 100 days because I was just like, oh, this <laughs> yeah. is about alcohol. This is what it's like to have energy and to sleep well and to be positive with the kids and to have mental clarity and... And to show up, by this point, I was running my own recruitment business. And I like I think in that three months, I made more money than I'd made the whole of the year before because I was motivated and I was doing my job. And um, mm. at the end of that 100 days, I was like, oh, yeah, but I can't never drink again because that would just be weird because, like, who am I without alcohol? So I was like, it's okay, though, because now I'll be fixed. And now I'll be a moderate drinker and I'll just go and have one or two every now and then, like normal drinkers, and everything will be fine. And within a month, I was back to drinking the same amount as before, if not more. Um, and that, that must have been quite devastating for you, though. Like, there must have been a lot of grief that came up around that or self-criticism or something that came up around that. Is that... Yeah, and that's why yeah. it escalated quickly, because that mm. came up. And suppression, <laughs> I'm not going to push that back down again. I don't want to feel that. I don't want that little voice that's telling me I'm crap and I'm terrible and I shouldn't be doing that. So I just drank more and more and more to make that voice go away. And mm. eventually, I and I and over two years, I kept taking breaks, going back to drinking, taking breaks. I was fighting so hard, Liz, to be a moderate drinker. I was fighting so hard. I just thought, it's my fault. I can't moderate my drinking. I have to try harder. I, I'm, I'm weak. I need more willpower. Um, other people can do it. Why can't I? Because the... Back then, there wasn't the information like there is now. There wasn't people like me sharing in the way that I do now. There was a couple of books and a couple of podcasts, but not the the sober community now is an extensive um, and incredible, but it wasn't like that then. Uh, so I thought I just had to try harder. It was my fault. I should mm. be able to moderate. And now I know that just strictly isn't true. Um, anyway, I finally made the decision and realization that moderation was never going to work for me. So I had two options, and that was to carry on drinking in a way that was utterly destroying my mental well-being because I'd had a glimpse now of who I was without alcohol. I'd seen yeah. her and I liked her and I wanted more of that. And so I said to my, I said to everyone, this time I'm doing a year, but I absolutely knew in my heart it was going to be forever because I knew that moderation was never going to work for me. So that was, it will be four years in April. Oh, Sarah, that's so beautiful. Yeah, 
That's so. really beautiful. I love the way, though, that you, you kind of mentally gave yourself that year, though. So you actually you didn't put too much pressure on yourself. You didn't say it's going to be forever. You felt in your heart it would be forever. But you also gave yourself that, that leeway to go, well, I'll just take baby steps. I mean, a year is a big step. But it's still, you know, one step in the right direction, isn't it? And so I guess for, you know, anyone who is listening to this, and if you have listened this far, you know, you are here for a reason. <laughs> you haven't listened this far because you just want to go out and keep drinking every single night. So you can take baby steps. You can start that process. And I also love, Sarah, that, you know, in just taking that one break, you found out so much more about yourself and you found this whole other person that was in there. And then that part, that can help you to then start to go, well, what pathway am I going down now? And I guess some people can go down the pathway where they do become a moderate drinker, right? And others perhaps need to refrain from it altogether. But perhaps rather than listening to this and thinking, I have to make a decision right now as to what it's going to be, take the break. Join one of Sarah's challenges and just give yourself that 30 days and allow yourself to learn all of this information from Sarah because there's so much I know that you put into those and you have so many amazing guest speakers. There's so much that people learn from it. Just give yourself that chance to have that time to learn about it, to educate yourself very deeply, but also to to learn who you are without it and then go from there. Because you can always go back, straight back in, can't you, to drinking as much as you ever have if you make that choice. But at least you get this glimpse of, well, actually, what is my life without it, without drinking? And I say to everyone, just see it as an experiment. Mm. This This is your life. And if you've ever only ever done it one way, and that's with alcohol. And if you're even considering taking a break, it probably isn't serving you right now or isn't how you want it to be. You owe it to yourself to give yourself a chance of taking a break mm. but not doing it in the way that dry July and Feb fast is, which is just cross off the days and, and stay at home and just get a project at home painting the kitchen so that I just will the days away and then I get smashed on the 1st of August. Do it. Yeah. Educate yourself. Join a tribe of women. And I've got women who have done my challenges four or five times because they've gone back to drinking. They wanted, they have, people have to test for themselves what their own limits are. It's just because my story was that I couldn't moderate. And even though I know the neuroscience says that most people won't be able to, it's not my place to, I would never tell anyone what they can and can't do. You have to experiment. And for some people, they have to know that they mm. can't moderate, come back again. And yeah. even just like this last challenge that for so many of my ladies, they've just said to me, something's just clicked this time. And sometimes it just does click. And you know, it mm. took me two years from that first break to finally finding the freedom and the happiness and feeling content with my decision yeah. to say, yeah, alcohol's gone now. It, it doesn't happen overnight, but we've got to start somewhere. And it, yeah. it's, it's a path. It's just knowing that you've changed onto that other path, which means that your destiny is, is changing. Yeah, because let's face it, this is your life. This is your one precious life. And whatever your spiritual beliefs are, whether you believe in reincarnation or not, whatever you believe in, right now, as the person you are right now, this is your one precious life. And if you are using alcohol to the degree that you are numbing this precious person that you are, you're numbing your entire life and you are literally just giving your whole life away to something, a, a substance that's in a bottle that you've been sold that's what, that's what you're doing. And there is enough support now, especially through what you do, Sarah, 
to help you to start to see your life not through the glass bottle or not through the tin or whatever it is that you're drinking, but through your own eyes with your own perspective on life. Because that's where freedom is. Freedom doesn't live in seeing our life through a particular substance. Freedom lives within us, knowing what we want from the world, knowing the life that we are going to carve out in this world. You can't know that if you are numbing who you are. In fact, really us numbing who we are, and I know that we can do it in many ways, is is really one of the most devastating things that we can do. Absolutely. And they've done neuroscience studies now that show that consistent regular drinkers change neural pathways that make them more habitual and less open to change. So people who are drinking, and, and, and all these studies are being done on people who are drinking one to two glasses a few nights a week. None of them are on the classic alcoholic. They're all on just consistent regular drinkers. And so if we're changing our pathways so we're less open to change, right, what is this life if it's not about learning and growing and evolving mm. and changing? Who wants to just stay exactly the same, doing exactly the same things for the rest of their lives? Yeah, well, well, spiritually, and we know through the, through the chakra system as well, alcohol actually disconnects us from inspiration. And so if we're disconnected from inspiration, you know, we are, we're actually here to bring in our own unique energy into the world. And we know now we need this more than ever in the history of the world. We need original, well, our original thought and creativity and inspiration to come in because we need change because the world right now is not great. And we have been, in many ways, humanity has been really dumbed down into this habitual form. We need creativity. We need inspiration. We need original thought because humanity can be beautiful. The world is beautiful. It's just got stuck in this space, which is not working. So if everyone keeps numbing themselves and cutting themselves off from this inspiration, everything will stay the same. But we need you. We need each each individual person to come and do this, you know, to... And then we have inner freedom. We have the world becomes this beautiful free space. And what better thing to do with our, with our time here? And, you know, Sarah, like one of the things that I will often bring myself to, and I, and I share this with clients as well, is when I'm making a decision where I need to find courage within myself or if there's a change that I want to make in my life and I'm unsure about it, I'm kind of teetering on the edge, I'll say to myself, if I was on my deathbed right now, what choice would I have wanted to make? Such a good question. And, I, and you always find the right answer in that space. Because each one of us will be on our deathbed one day and we're not going to be a different person when we're there. Because you know, and I know, I'm the same person I was, you know, 30 years ago. And I always thought I'd be a different person when I was middle age. I'm actually the same person. And when you're on your deathbed, I'll be Liz on my deathbed with my personality looking at my back at my life. And I want to know that I lived my life and not, I wasn't cut off from my life in that way. Yeah. And that's, I love that question so much, but you know, what comes up for me there is the thing about um, that what alcohol does is it, it keeps our world so small. So So small. small. And what so many of my ladies discover when they remove alcohol is 
that their world just opens up so much in terms of their mindset, in terms of what they add into it, in terms of what they're open to. And alcohol just keeps us small. And and do you know what? And that's why, and I mean, I won't even go on to a, a sexist rant now, but it certainly has <laughs> the patriarchy for women to continue drinking their wine every night. Like let's for, them to, for them to stay small, yeah. <laughs> and and the way that it, that it affects our third eye where our pituitary gland is, is it literally stops us from being able to manifest, create our, because our, our third eye, we can create our inner world. And when we create our own internal images, we can then manifest what we want in our lives. And alcohol cuts us off from that. It numbs that whole lot as well. But this might be a whole nother podcast that we do together, Absolutely. Sarah, because I'd love to go into the spiritual space of, of substance abuse and what that does to us spiritually, because that's, um, that's a big one. But... For now, I wonder if you can um, share with women, you know, or anyone else listening to the podcast, uh, you can be a man or whoever you are listening to the podcast, where they can go to find you and to get support from you. And even if they want to dabble, where they can go, and if they want to join your challenges, where they can go as well, how they find you. So come to my website, um, sarahrusbatch.com, and it's R-U-S-B-A-T-C-H. And there's a free guide on there, which has got all the initial resources that supported me to take a break. There's always information on there about the challenges that I run. So they're four times a year, January, April, July, October. You don't want to wait that long. There's always a 30-day program that's a self-paced program with lots of information that you can um, purchase at, at any time. I do one-to-one -one coaching as well. And I have a group coaching program called Rediscovering Me, which is okay, I've removed the alcohol, but who the hell am I now? And that's, um, I'm just in week two of that at the moment with an incredible group of women. And already, like what we're starting to unpack and, and what we're starting to, to understand about ourselves um, just fills my heart with joy every day. So those are the best places. Um, Instagram, I have um, I share a lot of content on there, a lot of free content, and that's just at Sarah Rusbatch. And my free Facebook community, which has got just the most incredible group of women from all over the world who are honest, open, vulnerable, sharing their stories. And that's called the Women's Wellbeing Collective. Sarah, thank you so much. You know how much I admire your work. Um, being able to talk to you this morning has been amazing. And um, yeah, thank you so much for always being so open and so vulnerable in the way that you share and so authentic. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And, and likewise, right back at you because um, <laughs> you have helped me more than you will ever know. So thank you. Aww, lots of love to you, Sarah. Mwah, thank you. Bye. Bye.